We find ourselves here in the book of Jeremiah. We looked at Isaiah last week. Jeremiah is a book not terribly uh, shorter than Isaiah, about 96 pages in my Bible, good number of chapters there. And this is, uh, I think, the 22nd installment of our sweep through the Scriptures as we look and gather to ourselves the things that the Lord gives to us, uh, really in the broad sweep of the Word of God. As we've taken one book at a time here, we find ourselves in Jeremiah. I'd like to recap a little bit of what the Lord has shown us in in His Word. For instance, in Genesis, we, we considered that humans are designed to have a growing, consequential, enriching, life-giving relationship to God. That the universe was created with a moral framework. That mankind's relationship to God is initiated by God, not based on any action of man. And with this framework of blessing through covenantal promises, which also exalt the glory and love of God, our Creator, and at the same time rightly humble man and prove his dependence on a loving God. We found that in the book of Genesis. And as we continued our sweep through the Scriptures, for instance, we look at Leviticus, and we see in Leviticus this connection of the dwelling of God with gospel obedience and assurance. This idea that God has designed for the relationship with humanity to be certainly one uh, that, uh, that requires a substitutionary atonement and a, made, a being made right by the work of Christ, but also this growing sense of holiness, this idea that God dwells uh, with us and we can sense it more fully as we focus ourselves on gospel obedience. In the book of Joshua, we looked and we came to understand that the life of the redeemed is a holy war. And we asked ourselves the question, what is the nature of this holy war that God has set us in? As exiles, uh, we see that in the book of Jeremiah, the concept of exile. In our responsive reading this morning, we took up First Peter, and First Peter also directs his attention primarily to a people who are in the category of being exiled, a people who are citizens of another country, a spiritual country, that is the country of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In the book of Ruth, we took up the nature of a Redeemer. This idea that we must have a Redeemer, and uh, while the concept of Redeemer isn't introduced in the book of Ruth, it is certainly more fully revealed to us. As we looked at 1 Samuel, we see the importance of calling people to spiritual renewal, the importance of understanding heart motive and cause and effect in spiritual matters. We, We see in 1 Samuel... Really, the introduction, if you will, of this concept of prophet, priest, and king in the Scriptures. We see this idea that will ultimately become the offices of the church and certainly more fully be represented in that perfect prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, in the book of 1 Samuel, we begin to see the rudiments of this shepherding aspect of what God has intended for His people. In Ezra, we see the costliness of true repentance. In Proverbs, we came to understand that triumphing in Christ will come about as God does what He intends to do in us and through us by acts of faith. We considered Proverbs in this area of triumphing in Christ, this idea that He has laid out before us a way that we walk and triumph in the Lord Jesus, giving glory, of course, to Him. And in Jeremiah, I would... 
propose that we focus on this concept, the impact, the nature, and necessity of shepherds in the kingdom of God. It may take you by surprise, but nonetheless, Jeremiah is a book filled with woes. And in this book, we see that Jeremiah brings great woe upon the shepherds of Israel. And we see the consequential aspect of, again, this process that God has intended would take place ultimately in His church. And that, of course would explain our focus here in Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah was a biblical theologian. He was able to grasp, on the one hand, the work of God in history, and on the other hand, how the nations should respond in light of an all-seeing, all-powerful God who is intimately involved in the affairs of His creatures. If you were to leaf through the book of Jeremiah, particularly the last half, you would see woe upon woe to nation, 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 and nation. And what we see again in this is Jeremiah's grasp of the all-seeing, all-powerful cosmic commander and creator of the universe as he brings to bear the Word of God, not upon merely individuals, but upon entire sweeping nations of history. And Jeremiah understood and brought to bear the Word of God, not with such magisterial profession as Isaiah did, but really in the sense of a refugee on the run. And that's very much what Jeremiah was. He was a prophet in Judah from the 13th year of Josiah's reign until the fall of the kingdom from 625 to 560. And children, I add that up to be 65 years between the reign of reluctantly faithful Hezekiah and one of the greatest kings in Judah, I'm referring to Josiah, was the leadership of Manasseh. Tucked between Hezekiah and Josiah was Manasseh and not even the incredible, commendable faithfulness of Josiah could overcome all of the wickedness that occurred during Manasseh's reign that involved all sorts of unfaithfulness, the worship of false gods, unholy alliances with other nations. While there were glorious days in the reign of Josiah, as I said, we see again the sins of the fathers and the grandfathers, if you will, compounding in his day such that there was no ability to overcome this wickedness. If you remember in the book of Isaiah, the relationship in Judah... Uh, that they had with their neighboring nations was profoundly impacted by the destruction of 185,000 Assyrians that were encamped outside of the gates of Jerusalem by an angel of God. Assyria never fully recovered from this situation and it made the way for powerful Babylon to dominate world events over Assyria and Egypt. Babylon ultimately conquered Judah carried away a number of her leaders, including Daniel and his friends, and ultimately Jeremiah. As I said, the book written more in a style of political prisoners and refugees on the run than the nice, tidy narratives written from well-settled offices we might see in the book of Isaiah. A collection of writings over the course of his entire career as a prophet contains varied types of writing from narrative, covenant lawsuits, Jeremiads, which... uh, named, of course, after Jeremiah, which are long recitations 
of mournful complaints, doom poems, sermons, oracles of judgment and salvation, predictive prophecy, messianic prophecy, prayers and judgment. And as I said, I'd like to draw your attention in this progress of redemption to the importance of shepherds in God's people. And we see that here in chapter 23. I think it's particularly applicable to us today and no doubt every day in the life of a believer, particularly in Western culture. And I'd like to use as an example uh, of the state, if you will, of spiritual leadership and shepherding and this concept of the church that Jeremiah is getting at with an example of the gospel itself. And I'm really with what some refer to as an inoculation against the gospel. And that sounds a little bit odd. We're all much more familiar with the concept of inoculation over the past two years than we ever would have been. But nonetheless, what I'm referring to is this idea, when we think about the false gospel, and there's a good bit of that out there, one of the, one of the men that has helped uh, really Christendom understand the calamity of the false gospel is a guy named Christian Smith who's written a number of books. And Christian Smith... Uh, really codified this idea of what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. And what he was talking about is a false gospel. This idea, um, for instance, that God exists, who created the ordered world. He watches over human life. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. This isn't the only version of false gospel. We also have the versions of health and wealth, this idea uh, that really what God is there for is for me to ask Him for things, material flesh-feeding things, uh, and for Him to give those things to me. Uh, And we also have other, of course, versions of the false gospel. But what I'm getting at is this idea that when people are drawn into these false gospels, what do they find? find out pretty quickly. There's no life in them. They, they, they cannot bring what they promise. There is no renewal spiritually. There is no growing closer to the Creator God. There is no union with Christ. There is no overcoming of sin. There is no selflessness. There is no being drawn to the things of God. There is no love, as the Gospel says, or in the book of 1 John, there's no love for God. There's no love for His people. There's no love for His Word. You see, the gig is up. They understand as they enter into this false Gospel that what they have is fake. But what also occurs often in these situations is the the same thing that the book of Ecclesiastes refers to in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the days get hard. 
And when you're inoculated against the gospel, things get hard. And what I mean by that, and what often Bible students mean by this concept is, when I entertain the false gospel for a certain period of time, I come to the point where I no longer believe that there is a gospel. I reject everything that has to do with the gospel. And it doesn't matter. I become impervious to the truth because of my rejection of even the concept of the gospel. This idea. Now, unfortunately, the same thing is true when we consider the church of God. When we consider this, this, the necessity of the shepherding aspect of, of ourselves, the shepherding concept that, that is in the context of and is a full body experience in the church. This idea, what is it? And think of it. Think of it in, in our own day. Think of, think of uh, you know, again, the, the situation in Western civilization right now. The church has made a mockery of there's, there's no help in that quarter. Right. We, we, we see the billboards. We understand that what church appears to be is some sort of country club mentality where I check the block. And there's, there's certainly the unfortunate truth that most people never experience anything near a biblical concept of church, of the shepherding ministry of the church that God intends. And when that occurs, there's a wholesale rejection of even the paradigm or the nature of humanity that God has created in us that demands and requires the church. Now, if that isn't bad enough, we have happened to combine that with the recent authoritarian bent in our own Western culture. And this has, of course, dusted off the roots that were always on the surface of rugged individualism in Americana. And again, in similar fashion, this has brought an additional methodology in which I reject the things of God and I go it alone. This would be to do the same thing that Jeremiah brings a woe to in 23. Imagine what it, have been, what it would have been like in the days of Samuel, in the days of Eli, who Samuel followed. When the people came to the priest to offer their offerings to the Lord and they found the priest to be debauched. That was a low ebb in the days of Israel. And so, and so it seemed that likely they felt they had no other choice but to enter into this, this counterfeit of what it is that God had presented. But to reject the entire concept of the worship of God. To reject the notion that I must hear from God and that God will speak through His Word and through His people. To reject the very idea that it is, as an individual, I need to be led in the way of God by those that God has placed before me would be to reject that which there is no substitute for. 
Again, in a nation of rugged individuals that are inclined to do things themselves, there has been an inclination to reject the very concept of the necessity of the church and of her ministry to God's people. This idea that that I can do this myself. The point isn't that you need the professional. The point is, is that God has so designed us as His people that this is, this is His design and this is the way that we move forward. The biblical truth of the matter, of course, rejects this concept. There's no biblical substitute for the role of shepherding in the life of humans. We're designed to need to be taught, to need to be held accountable, involved in faithful body life, to be discipled, to disciple others, to grow in grace. This is all designed to take place in the context of a church body, with body life that's multidimensional. It's not problem-free. It's full of blood, sweat, and tears. It's full of little crying babies and sassy teenagers and adults that need to grow in grace. That's who we are. And God has decided that the challenges in our lives are not aberrations that surprise Him, but they, in fact, are the very context and the fuel by which He works in us. That we might be a people who delight ourselves in recognizing that not only are we sinners, but we're redeemed. That we're okay with that because we're growing in Christ. We're not surprised by our own sin and our own turning away from the Lord. But we are surprised when we reject the things of God over and over. But your brothers and sisters in Christ are here designed by God to bring you back into the fold. Being shepherd and moving into conformity to Christ involves doing things that are uncomfortable. And this is one of the things that I think runs counter, again, to our own human nature. This idea uh, that I stand in judgment to the things of God. The reality is, when you're conformed to the image of Christ, you know what? It might be painful. It might involve doing something that you don't want to do. The Apostle Paul explains this beautifully with the simple notion of the work of the gymnasium. Some of you have spent a good bit of time in a gym. I've spent a good bit of time in a swimming pool myself. painful. It's cotton-picking cold, too. You swim fast just to stay warm. But it's this kind of thing. It's this kind of thing that God uses 
No, I don't want to do that. Well, do you want to grow in grace? Do you want to delight yourself in the things of God? Do you want to be used of God? Do you want to walk with God? Do you want to serve others? Do you want to see that? Do you want to have a life that's fulfilled? A life, as Robert Murray McShane says, is well lived. A life that one says, when he's gone, I miss that guy. I miss him because of the kind of person that he was in my life. And this is what Jeremiah is getting to as he brings woe and again brings recognition and he lays upon the ministry of the church and those involved in shepherding. Look what you have done. And as God's people, we can't say, oh, well, that's a failed experiment. What's the next iteration? There is no iteration. There's the ministry of the church. And that's it. There's no plan B. And so, all the more important for us to invest ourselves in what God has set before us. There's no innovation in the Scriptures. It's not, oh, this didn't work. No, it will work. It does work. This is God's purpose. This is His plan. The church and God's ministry to individuals and families through the churches become to some, as David Wells has said, weightless. I've appreciated the writings of David Wells through the years as he tackles the culture in our nation. And David Wells goes back again and again and again as he, as he addresses the culture in Western society. What does he do? He points to Scripture time and time again. The proclamation of the Word of God. The faithfulness of church ministry. The rightness of walking with Him. These simple concepts of discipleship, of of meditating on the Word of God and following Christ against the world. And that's what Jeremiah is calling us to here. And David Wells is... Probably his latest book is called God in the Whirlwind. And this concept of whirlwind actually shows up right here in Jeremiah chapter 23. In verse 19, the Bible says, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. Now here's the idea. Here's the idea in a whirlwind, and this is... This is really the concept that David Wells gets at in his book, is this idea that the love of God in our own day needs to be prefaced with this idea of the holy love of God. One of the things that Wells points out very helpfully is this idea that historically, again, the biblical concept of God was ultimately that He was holy and transcendent. Not only transcendent, not only out there and holy, of course, but also imminent. He's close and loving. But what we should admit in our own day is that we have lost the sense of God's holiness and of His transcendence. Many of our countrymen would far rather listen to what Oprah Winfrey says about God. That, that He only has one, one thing that He does, and that's to cuddle up and love us and give us whatever we want. And then He'll let us do whatever we want. But God's love is holy love. It's not coldly rigid. 
But he's given to us the Holy Spirit so that as he brings us into his home, we learn more and more that our muddy boots don't belong on the coffee table. We grow up in grace with all of the trappings and majesty of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That doesn't mean you need to go out and buy some silk. But what it does mean is that there's work to be done in conformity to the ways of God. Well said, the shifting of tectonic plates in Western societies has brought us to this new psychological world. Children, tectonic plates, let's take that as an example. Have you ever heard that term before? That's a big word. Tectonic plates. What a tectonic plate is, it's this thing that continents sit on. And we're persuaded that one of the aspects of the flood was that these huge plates upon which the continents rest actually moved around. But we also see that spiritually this this massive movement has also occurred in Western society. Wells uses that as an example of this idea that there used to be this paradigm, this nature of our own lives that we understood to be a moral thing. But no longer. Now we're into psychological man. We're into the therapeutic idea. This idea that God exists for the express purpose of making me who I want to be. That's a very different idea than what's revealed in the Scriptures. Jeremiah 23, 26, and 27 Bring this idea. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? The prophet declares that the people were like lost sheep who have forgotten their fold. And this kind of forgetfulness, Jeremiah points out again and again and again, only leads to calamity. Now let's look at the text of Scripture here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 23. What's the state of the sheep? And sheep, children, are probably one of the most common illustrations used of God's people, used of humans in creation. This idea of sheep and the sheep we see that Jeremiah refers to here, of course, are God's people and they are scattered and destroyed. And you want to say, who is responsible for this? Jeremiah says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. There is small comfort, perhaps, that the pastors of his day could take and that he wasn't referring only to those spiritual leaders. Certainly he involved the kings of Israel and Judah as shepherds, but nonetheless, we get his point. Verse 2 here, Therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock, you've driven them away, you've not attended to them. Behold, I will 
attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And you may say, well, that's certainly abrupt. What's next? Well, we're not through with this yet, because when we look at 9 through 11 here, we see that Jeremiah is quite urgent about this situation. He says, My heart is broken within me, in verse 9. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine, because of the Lord and because of His holy words. For the land is full of adulterers, because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. That is, this is an abuse of power. Jeremiah reports that seeing those not called mislead God's flock shakes him to his core. And he draws attention to spiritual leadership as something that is very significant in the issue. And again, it's easy for us in our own day to say, well, there's, there's no longer a need for that. They've all proven themselves to be utter failures. And so I'm going to step into a new paradigm of how God will work in my life. But what Jeremiah is getting at is there is no other paradigm. The reality is if God's called you to Himself, He's also called you to a church. <laughs> and guess what? He'll provide a church for you. You don't have to worry about that. Now, it'll be interesting to see the way the Lord works regarding that, but nonetheless, we're not floating out there as those who are untethered. John Donne came up with this idea that no man is an island, and that is certainly true for us, and that's one of the things that Jeremiah is getting at here. There's an urgency about Jeremiah in this passage. Verses 16 through 18 also reveal more of Jeremiah's concerns with these false shepherds. They flatter, they fill people with vain hopes, they speak to a people who happily comply with despising the Word of God. I would draw your attention. Verses 1 through 8 really speak the truths of the main aspect of what Jeremiah is getting at here, but then in the following verses in the chapter, we see additional sort of ideas uh, that really support and give more depth and breadth to what Jeremiah is talking about. Woe to the shepherds in verse 1. And a sense of urgency is revealed, as I said, in verses 9, 10, and 11. My heart is broken. In verse 16, he goes so far as to say, Don't listen to the words of the prophets. Why? They just flatter you. The false prophets prophets flatter. It's a significant publishing arm, unfortunately, in Christendom today is in the category of flattery. It's because some publishers have become terribly compromised. They have recognized that giving people flattery sells books. And the undiscerning 
are drawn into reading book after book after book after book, and they find them not to represent the reality of their lives. But it's almost like Marxism. It's like, no, no, if we try it this way, it'll work. No, it won't. Flattery will never work. Nor will the false gospel. Nor will a rejection of human nature and the way that God has designed human nature to work and to be worked into His kingdom. There's flattery, there's rejection, there's vain hopes. These sorts of things Jeremiah rightly rejects. And then we see a high point here from verses 3 through 8. What does he say? He says, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them. We can think about the ways that God has used the disbursement of His people. What has happened? We, we see that a great church, many churches, have been brought about by the dispersion that occurred in the New Testament in, from Jerusalem. We see that many, many people have come to the Lord Jesus simply because they were run out of town. But God says, I will gather them. I will raise up a shepherd, a chief shepherd, and he will have under shepherds. And this will happen. And that's what he's saying here. The restoration of the flock involves not the complete change in the nature of care for God's people, but in a renovation of the shepherds and the installation of the chief shepherd. Matthew Henry says, Abuse for the sacred office of shepherd doesn't mean it's abolished. There's a gathering that will be accomplished, verse 3. Many are persuaded they're seeing this in some sections of Christendom today. Again, see how the Lord has gathered us. Many have felt like exiles, right? But we see that God has brought us together somehow. We're persuaded that it has been His purpose and His plan to carry that out. We see this very thing that Jeremiah speaks of here in chapter 23. There's a gathering that will be accomplished. A marked increase in cultural opposition to biblical Christianity again has resulted in a gathering of like-minded people brought about by the revelation of the power of the righteous branch of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in the New Testament. Right? We see this idea. Consider what the Lord has done. Consider the way the Lord Jesus sent out His disciples. How He proclaimed the gospel to them. How they healed the sick and brought relief to the poor. The Apostle Paul was specifically tasked with that. And he took it seriously. And we see that this is the way that God works. And while, again, we may be a people who are inclined to reject the very notion, but Jeremiah is calling us again back to the Scriptures, back to God's purposes and plans. May that be true for us. A gathering of those scattered for various reasons, bringing back to the fold a haven of God's special grace. What else do we have here but fruitful multiplication? Verse 3, they shall be fruitful. 
and multiply. Order and flourishing certainly go together. We could describe our day as a day of distress. A day of challenge, a day of difficulty. But we also see that in God's economy, His church, what does it look like? Well, it is a haven under the righteous branch of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a spiritually safe place. It is a place where God's people are gathered, where they are shaped into the image of the Lord Jesus. Jeremiah refers to those days. His living word, applicable in timely ways to every aspect. We see this again in verse 3. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Verse 4. I will set shepherds over them who care for them. They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. It's like something right out of the playbook of our day. Dismay, ruin, despair seem to be everywhere around us. And here Jeremiah is saying, no, no, look no further than the ways and things of God. He has a plan and a purpose. And the context of this is yet again His faithfulness to us. Union with Christ coming under His dominion brings with it no more fear, no more dismay. Well, that's only the same thing that the Apostle John said in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light has come. What does the rest of the verse say? I think it says the darkness has not overcome it. Do you believe that? That's what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying, don't cast off all of this. We can look to the Lord and to His faithfulness. We can look again to the way that He works, to the way that He's intended to work. Verse 23, verse 6, chapter 23, verse 6, In his days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Notice the priority of righteousness here. He didn't say the Lord is our power, the Lord is our healing, the Lord is our financial success. No doubt the Lord is interested in these things for us. But when the people left Egypt in the Exodus, they did not understand that the great initiative of the Creator of the universe and of the Creator of the people of God was not actually primarily about living, leaving a physical land. It was about leaving their sins. In the days of the New Testament, the Messiah that was to come The establishment of the day, the spiritual establishment, was absolutely certain that the Messiah had everything to do with freedom from Roman rule and proving that that which they knew 
was absolutely false. And that Messiah was going to be an altogether different individual. And I would draw your attention to Psalm chapter 46. This is the exact situation that Jeremiah finds himself in. Yes, he has a reputation for being a doom and gloom prophet, but chapter 23 is not doom and gloom. It's hopeful. It's encouraging. This is what God has for you. But look at the context in which Jeremiah speaks. Well, it's right here in Psalm 46. Verse 2, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Children, look at me for a minute. I want you to picture, if you will, driving along the Pacific Coast Highway, a place I've never been. And I want you to picture, if you will, the mountains that certainly touch that highway. And I want you to think about what you would think in your mind if you were driving along, everything is safe, and you stay safe, but you see a mountain in front of you slip into the sea. What would you think of that? What would you think if the earth began to give way there? You saw the waters where that mountain just fell into the sea, roaring and foaming. What would you say? You might say, oh no! What's next? And God says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. He said, all is not lost. And this is what Jeremiah is saying. In the midst of such tragedy and calamity, Jeremiah is saying this. God's got this. All will be well. Look to me. Listen to me. Follow me. I'm setting before you the way of faithfulness. Walk in it. Verse 6 of Psalm 46, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Okay. God says, come behold the works of the Lord. You see, it is God who moves mountains into seas. And it is God who rescues His people and provides for them. Jeremiah 23. Let us pray.